So hey, Andy. Yes. Knock, knock. Who's there? Boo. Boo. Well, don't cry. It's only a joke. Boo. Words. <laughs> to this very special, very spooktacular episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. We are episode 10 uh, this week, yeah. so we've hit double digits. We are now in grade five and uh, checking along in our podcasting lifestyle. So uh, I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm the other host, Andy. And as I said, this is our uh, episode that comes out right before Halloween. So we figured we would do a spooky themed episode and fit in with all of the supernatural. There you can hear the train rolling through my village. Choo choo. Choo choo. <laughs> um, like I was saying, we're, our spooky episode is going to fit in with all of the uh, spooky themed podcasts. It seems that's the most popular. Yes. Theme. The true crime lore. Paranormal. Lore. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're finally jumping on that bad wagon for at least one episode. Two for me. Two for Andy, yes. <clears throat> Andy's got a two-parter lined up for you guys, so. Yeah, when I finished my notes for this episode, I realized there were seven pages typed, written, 11 font, single space. So that might be a bit long for right. one. <laughs> so we'll split that. Um, but it's all good. Just more to love of the spookiness from us, so. Uh, before we get started, let's take care of some housekeeping um, activities yes. and just let you know where you can find us. So you can find us on our website at rabbitholespodcast.com. That has uh, all of our merch, our blog, and a bunch of other stuff posted about us. Uh, you can email us uh, at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com to tell me how I'm messing up people's names. <laughs> Uh, or tell us about a rabbit hole you've fallen down. You can reach us at Twitter, or reach us, I mean Elise, <laughs> at Rabbit Holes Pod. You can reach us and me at Facebook, at mm -hmm. Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. Absolutely. And if you want to support us and uh, help us uh, run this podcast, head on over to patreon.com and consider becoming a patron for us. You can connect via Patreon's website or on our support tab on the website. We have lots of fun stuff up and more fun stuff coming to the not-so-secret secret part of our website for patrons of the Velveteen tier and above. And if you want to rep us out in the big wide world, you can pick up some merch from redbubble.com. Uh, that's who's hosting our store for us. Or you can check out the merch tab on our website. And we have just finished running our first um, contest to help get uh, our name out there and get some good ratings and reviews for the show. And um, the and winner was announced on Sunday when this episode uh, went up. And that is Valerie, who has been Ooh! yay. Valerie's been a longtime supporter of ours. Uh, she was the first one to jump on board the Rabbit Holes bandwagon when we opened shop. 
So we're very excited that we're going to be sending her some... And she's not related to either one of us. Yeah! (laughs) She is the first rando in our lives, so it's all good. Uh, So yeah, uh, Valerie, we hope you enjoy the special presents that you'll be getting in the mail, and feel free to post some photos of you showing off your Rabbit Holes podcast merch. So yeah. So, I think it's time to get on with our stories and get on with the show. Uh, how do you want to do this? Who's going first this week? Uh, do you want to go first, and then I'll go second, and then maybe next point two quarter I'll go first. Sure, sounds good. So, um, my topic this week was a complete kind of redo. I had one topic picked out and written up, and then I was like, ah, uh, it's a little creepy, but it's more sad in the end of things. So, I need to find another topic that um, really gets to the creepiness that is the Halloween season. So that left me casting about for another subject. I was scrolling through notes that I keep on my phone, my like giant list. And at some point I had added the concept of ley lines to my list. And so I was like, this is perfect. Um, I was watching an episode of Ghost Adventures with Zach Baggins, the biggest D-bag in the world. Uh, And they were, they did like a special haunted special about ley lines. So I figured it would be creepy enough eventually. So that's where we're going this week. So what exactly are ley lines? From the website ancientwisdom.com, I have a definition, which even ancientwisdom.com pulled from Wikipedia. So (laughs) my attempts to- Oh, Wikipedia. Yeah, my attempts to avoid the Wikipedia of it all uh, kind of backfired. Uh, So this definition uh, from ancientwisdoms.com, ley lines are hypothetical alignments of a number of places of geographical interests, such as ancient monuments and megaliths. Their existence was suggested in 1921 by the amateur archaeologist Alfred Watkins, whose book, The Old Straight Track, brought the alignment to the attention of the wider public. So most ancient cultures have versions or an understanding of what ley lines are. Uh, The Germans have, and I'm going to butcher this, Haile Gleinen. Irish have the fairy paths. The Chinese have dragon lines. Peruvians have spirit lines. And the Australian Aborigines have song paths. So it's all over the world and every culture throughout time. There's lots of theories on how these lines were originally created. Uh, Some of them are caused by humans. So they were funerary paths leading between ancient religious sites. They were created as part of the mapping process that um, different cultures used when they were doing geographical alignments. So the, the maps with like the triangles on them, some think that the ley lines were a result of that, and people just following those lines, thinking that's what they had to do. Uh, natural causes. Some people think that they represent the Earth's magnetic field, and many of them are also aligned along astronomical patterns, uh, like the megalithic sites. So was it originally just a path that humans were following because it felt right, or they followed purposely because it followed um, an astrological yeah, path. path? We don't know. And then there's the unknown causes, which are ascribed to gods or spirits, just creating these tracks. Uh, They're often confused with um, Roman roads, but I mean, again, it's the case of, did the Romans build along the ley lines because it felt right to build there, or like what? So they are two- Was it a natural path that people were just following because it went between mountains and like the least path of least resistance. resistance? That's a good way to put it, yeah. There's also a theory that says it's just coincidence. Uh, There are just so many sites of human interest along them that you're bound to create some sort of interesting pattern at some point. 
the person who proposes this coincidence theory, I, their thing is line up all of the red telephone boxes in England and you're going to find a lot of ley lines along those as well. It's just so many of them that you're bound yeah. to create a line here and there. So that's a kind of a basic definition, um, but we are here to talk spooky, scary stuff. So I wanted to get a bit more information on how, th let's move out of the, the non-scary stuff and into the paranormal supernatural things. From supernaturalmagazine.com, which, by the way, awesome. Supernatural Magazine, how do we not know about this? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> there is an article there uh, titled, Ley Lines and the Connection to Adverse Spiritual Phenomena. In this article, uh, they differentiate between magnetic lines and ley lines. So magnetic lines are lines of energy that crisscross the planet, while the ley lines are man-made and for very human reasons, like getting from point A to point B. It's no surprise that humans created ley lines uh, and gravitated towards the magnetic lines, but I'm just going to call them ley lines throughout because it sounds weirder and yes. that's what we're here for. Energy vortexes caused by ley lines are a powerful magnetic attraction for all kinds of spirits. Uh, those entities can be drawn um, to the ley lines and to the vortexes they create to feed off the energy and manifest. So where these ley lines kind of intersect, if there's a lot of them running in an area, they'll create these like vortexes of power and energy. And so spiritual um, people think that that's where a lot of spirits come out is around ley lines because of that energy. Hmm. So the inner earth vibrates at 7.82 Hertz. But when water is passing through the earth uh, between 200 and 500 feet below the surface, it creates a stress line of around 250 Hertz. So the numbers jack up real fast, real high. This resonance can be felt on all planes of existence and draws more recent spirits to it if they know what electricity is. So our whole like, when I die, I'm going to be singing Britney Spears as I haunt your house. Well, we feel this energy because we know what electricity is. But if you die in the 1600s, you're not necessarily going to be attracted to ley lines because you don't know what that energy is. These vibrations can also be blamed for spirit activity where there is none. So vibrating in ranges that can't be perceptibly heard by humans will often cause headache, nausea, dizziness, and weird tingling sensations, all of which are kind of reported sometimes with ghost activities. I think the most interesting case of this that I've read is about the Dyatlov Pass. Have you ever heard of that story? Yeah. So there's like a bunch of Russian hikers in the 40s who were hiking up Dyatlov and then they just disappeared. And when I say Russian hikers, I mean they were in university for hiking. Like it was their major in university. They're all really experienced. They were going for... You can have a major in hiking? You could in the Russian university system in the 40s. Wow. <laughs> and so they just disappeared and no one can figure out why. So then they retraced their patterns and like found them. Their tent was torn apart, the bodies were missing, they were found scattered throughout the region, some of them were naked, others had tongue missing, like, and they could never figure out why until some scientists proposed that the place where they had pitched their tent was exactly in the wrong spot for the resonant vibrations of the valley. So wind blowing over these two sets of mountains created this hertz situation where the vibrating that they couldn't hear drove them insane and drove them out of the tent thinking that they were under attack. And I think that's like the most extreme case I've ever heard of for vibrations and what we don't know and attacking us. And like people think like, was it a Yeti that attacked them? Was it aliens? Was it ghosts? Just probably each other. Just each other. Like somebody went like bonkers and killed them. No, like one scientist is proposing this hurts the sound vibration and 
I think it's the most compelling reason why. So read up on the Diablo Pass if you're more interested in it. There's a great book whose name I can't remember, but Astonishing Legends did a really good story about them too. Wow. A couple years ago. I'm also still amazed that you could have a major in hiking. It was the 50s, 40s. It was a Russia. Weird I guess they, they, it's not like the rest of us are going, can I get a job out of this? It's Russia. They all get jobs yeah. anyway. <laughs> I don't think like, okay, so maybe the diploma didn't say hiking, but it was like outdoor science or tech or sports or something. I don't know. Anyway, like there's five or six of them and they were really high in yeah. their fields. These vibrations, like I said, uh, can often be mistaken for spiritual activity where there is none. And because magnetic fields can shift with time, the stories of hauntings come and go from areas because these magnetic fields are constantly moving and oscillating back and forth. So that's why you hear about some ghosts that just disappear from a farmhouse and no one's sure why. I then wanted to learn a bit more about this whole energy phenomenon. So I went to Haunted Ottawa Paranormal Society's website. I didn't know we had a paranormal society in Ottawa, but Neither we do. Yeah, we do. Geomancers, the name of those who study ley lines, say that they move energy along them, both good and bad. If you have a garbage dump on a landline, for example, it's possible that the physical decomposition occurring in the dump will contribute to negative energy in the area, which gets picked up by the ley lines and transferred up and down that line. When a ley line becomes negative, because of this kind of influx of negative energy, it's known as a black stream. And these can also be created in underwater channels when they become polluted or weakened, and then it creates bad energy in the area above it. And if you can't figure out why, there might be a case of a flowing river underneath you that for some reason has become corrupted. Being on a black stream can make you physically ill or it can lead to emotional disturbances. And common symptoms are reported as never feeling relaxed after a night's sleep, aching muscle joints, over-emotional uh, sensitivity, uh, hyperactivity and aggression, weakening of the immune system, headaches, depression, and stress. Which, we've all had months like that, and I don't think we're on a ley line that would affect it, but can you call in sick from work because of ley line activities is what uh, I want to know. I, I, I think I can. You, yeah, I might be able to. I don't think you can anymore. So when you get into these conditions, like when you're physically weakened, you're opening yourself up for unwanted paranormal activities, which the ley lines also bring along with them. So you're kind of getting a double whammy of being physically awesome. affected by the ley lines and the spirits are also on the ley lines. So they're just treating you like a buffet for more energy. Mm -hmm. As I said, the energy in these ley lines can lead to vortexes, and these become gateways between the physical and spiritual worlds. And since like attacks, uh, attracts like, if you're on a black stream and you're feeling like shit, you're most likely to attract something not so nice to you. And that's where we get poltergeist and demonic, quote unquote, demonic activities haunting you. Yay. <laughs> but let's talk about some of the fucked up shit that has happened to people on ley lines. Yes, please. Yes, that's what we're here for. So, the Sacramento Paranormal Intuitive Research Investigation Team, or SPIRIT, someone got creative with the acronym, they have a story on their website about an investigation they did in 2006. Jay, a homeowner, called in the team because the front living room of his new house had been taken over by paranormal activity and was basically unusable. Being in there gave people headaches and dizziness, and the energy was starting to move into the rest of the house. And when I say new house, I mean it was like a new build, like it was only a couple years old. The investigators confirmed that the symptoms uh, were experienced 
could be experienced, they had them themselves. So it was no surprise when the EMF detector, which is an electromagnetic field detector, went off, as did a bunch of the other equipment that they have. But they couldn't find a source. They tried ruling out the breaker panel being on the fritz, unexposed lines, but because it was a new build, all the lines were underground, so odds of them being cracked or exposed were very low. And they couldn't find any sort of incorrect wiring, so they had to rule out external sources. While they were walking around the property, the team found a second EMF surge that ran along Jay's house, down the side of it, and into a neighboring house, which had been empty for a couple years and couldn't be sold. Like, it had sat on the market for ages and nobody was interested in buying it. They traced the pattern back and found that two magnetic lines crossed in the middle of Jay's front room. And they have some really cool footage of taking a compass, like just a plain old magnetic compass, pointing it so that it's true north, and then turning 45 degrees and it pointing true north again. So that's where the, the crisscross is happening between the lines. Uh, because of the energy present, there were also spirits present. They caught a whole bunch of orbs in the pictures and they had brought in uh, somebody who was claiming that there was some, they had on their team like an empath or a psychic who was picking up these spirits. And they thought there were also familial spirits present who were trying to help Jay and his family. The final recommendation from the spirit team was that Jay leave the house because you just couldn't fix that situation. You can't undo ley lines for property value purposes. Yeah. So they just recommended that he pack up and leave. And they had an update to the story a couple years later that he finally did get out of that house, but his life was like in shambles by the time he did. So take it seriously, I guess, if you're living on the ley line is the takeaway from that story. So what happens when an energy collects spirits that aren't all that good uh, for those that are living around them? From the Society of Psychical Research's website, there is a story that I'm going to not tell you what the title is because it's going to give away the story. But here's what happened to a particular family. On August 30th, 1977, two of the four children of Margaret Hodgson's tried to convince their mother that their bed was shaking. The next night, the family observed mysterious knockings and a chest of drawers sliding along the floor. Margaret called in the police, and one officer observed a chair wobble and slide, but was unable to determine the cause. The morning after that, small objects started zooming around the house and hitting the people living inside. These events were the beginning of what is known now as the Enfield Poltergeist activity. Over the next year and a half, over 30 people, including neighbors, journalists, and paranormal investigators, witnessed heavy furniture move, loud noises, children levitating, disembodied voices, pictures coming off the wall, small fires starting and stopping on their own, full and partial apparitions, and the restraining of family members. The investigators that were on scene believed it was the activity of a poltergeist, and poltergeists are most attracted to, well, the thought at the time was, young teenagers who are going through emotional turmoil that comes along with raging hormones. So it was no surprise that the activity seemed to be focused around the daughters of the family, Janet and Margaret, and it would even follow them to school and to their friends' homes. Uh, there was oh, nice. A, yeah, you know, it's a traveling ghost, I guess, at that point. Uh, one physicist who was brought in to study what was happening strapped Janet down to something called the Blundell Couch. And this is used to measure anomalies in weight. So theoretically, if you're on the couch and nothing is happening to you, you should be at constant weight um, if you're lying still. In that study, he found that, quote, two sudden five-second weight increase signals of about one kilogram 
and a minute of gradual weight increase, which eventually returns to normal, had occurred, and he was unable to explain. So if for just five seconds you've gained a kilogram, which is about a quarter of a pound, and there's no explanation for why, like, that shouldn't happen, and then to have a general weight increase over a, a short period of time that returns to normal, again, it's an unexplainable phenomenon. According to Mark Patrick Gibbon's article, which I'm going to talk about in the next story, the Enfield House sat on a location where 13 ley lines intersected. Good lord. Yeah. That's not confirmed anywhere else that I've read it, and I think it's coincidental that it's the number 13. So, take that with a grain of salt. There were some ley lines, though, maybe. Yeah. Even one or two I would not be surprised at. However, for all of these evidence and things that were caught on camera and in the recording, the story has largely been debunked since, and it's generally believed that the girls were pranking people. (laughs) Even to the point where um, somebody was interviewing them from a news report, and one of the girls, I guess, said something that implied it, like, straight on camera and it's on film, and the older one kind of hit her and said, no, don't say that. (laughs) And the whole idea of like the poltergeist following them to different locations. If you're pranking people, it's obviously going to come with you. Yeah. So. <laughs> this story, though, was the inspiration for Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. Uh, so if you're familiar with that, it's inspired by the Enfield haunting. And I found out Dan Aykroyd wrote the script for Poltergeist. Really? I know. I'm doing research for this. That was so. I that was the weirdest thing I learned about in this entire article, <laughs> like story that I'm doing. And I, I gotta say, I, I saw Poltergeist, I don't remember, I was quite young, and it was very terrifying. Yeah, I haven't. Um, I don't think I've watched it since. And I don't know if I watched the original or the second one where the girl ends up, like as it ends, like you see the girl walking down the hallway and mm-hmm. go in the elevator, and it's like a hallway with mirrors, and then you realize that she's not actually there, she's in the mirror, and her face is oh, like, yeah, it's like, yee. That's exactly why I have not seen them at all. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just creeped Elisa out. Uh, terribly. Um, so not only did the Enfield Haunting inspire Poltergeist, but there is a British miniseries from 2015 called The Enfield Haunting. So if you would like to know more about that, it's also a really popular story, so I'm sure a lot of podcasts have covered it. Yeah. And that's why we drink has, definitely. So check out those (laughs) for a more detailed experience. But it is not just ghosts that flock to ley lines. UFOs do as well. From Project Proves, ooh, yeah, from Project Proves website, there's an article by Mark Patrick Gibson titled "Ley Lines and Their Connections to the UFO." He claims that there's an observable pattern in the last 15 years that UFO activities happen often in areas saturated by ley lines. To prove that uh, the ley lines are in fact a magnetic draw for people, he took two psychics to areas where there had been UFO sightings, widely reported, and he didn't tell them what they were looking for but they were drawn to the ley lines that are in the area. So it was like a proof, proving exercise. On bad or blacked out ley lines, they felt pain and anger, while on regular lines, they felt positivity. And he claims to have researched the lines in the area and he found the black ones via historical records of witchcraft, which Andy just eye rolled super hard. (laughs) And I think that's legitimate eye roll. I mean, (laughs) witchcraft and people who are accused of witchcraft were often just women who didn't want to put up with men in their lives, so lived alone and made some extra money by selling herbs on the side. (laughs) Yeah. In his research, uh, which he did both first and second hand, so his own and then uh, done by others, he sees a lot of parallels between abductions and ley lines, 
Most abductees seem to live on or around heavy ley line sites, on lines that have a history of uh, occult practices occurring on them, so think black streams, there is more reports of abductions by gray aliens, and those are the proby type of aliens. Oh, fun. Yeah. And poltergeist activities. On good lines, in contrast, uh, alien encounters are more positive in nature. So, more friendly neighborhood aliens. Think E.T. instead of... Okay. Yeah. And Casper. And Casper. Yeah, instead of a date rape situation. Now we know aliens are also attracted. I want to find a story about a case of one of those. On ufocasebook.com, I found a story by UK ufologist, which there's a title for you, Jenny Randalls on the Alan Godfrey abduction uh, to tell you about. So Eastern Britain was apparently a hotbed of UFO activities in the late 1980s. During the night of November... Also a hotbed of maybe drugs, cocaine in the 1980s? I'm just going to say. <laughs> just going to throw it out there. There was no Netflix. People needed something to do. So, yeah. That makes sense. During the night of November 28, 1980, Police Constable Alan Godfrey was driving around Todd Morden, which is in the middle of what's known as UFO Alley, and he was looking for some lost cows that had been reported missing. Slow night, if yeah. the cops are looking for cows for you. Having given up, Godfrey was headed back to the station when he noticed a large mass on the road ahead. It was a fuzzy oval that rotated at speed and was hovering low to the ground. He stopped to draw the object, but then there was a big burst of light, and the next thing he remembers, he was driving his car again a few miles away from where he had stopped, and the UFO was nowhere to be seen. And by his estimation, he had lost 15 minutes of time that he couldn't remember actively. To avoid ridicule, uh, he wasn't going to say anything, because, duh. (laughs) But as a cop, he was hearing a lot the next day from people in the area who were reporting seeing strange lights or um, objects flying in the sky. And it wasn't just civilians reporting this, other police officers had seen bright flashes of lights as well. So he figured- They were all out looking for cows? I guess. (laughs) So he figured, okay, I'll admit it. I'll come forward and, and file a report. So he did. And surprisingly, the police released the story to the local media. Um, I assume somebody didn't like Godfrey, maybe, and so tipped off the local reporter and they picked up the story and carried it. After the local media picked it up, it went national, not surprising, and the story exploded. And it was very embarrassing for Godfrey, and he regretted having come forward, as you might have No doubt. Yeah. I feel bad for him. Yeah. Uh, Godfrey couldn't consciously remember what had happened in those 15 minutes that he lost, so he agreed to be hypnotized. While he was under, he reported that the bright light that he saw had stopped his car's engine and created static in both the car radio and the walkie-talkie, and then he passed out. He woke up in a strange room that looked like it was in a house, not a spaceship of any kind, and there was a large black dog there. He was being studied by a man with a big heavy beard who had told him telepathically that his name was Yosef. Helping Yosef were several small robot-like creatures. They were just studying him. They weren't poking or prodding, really. So, I mean, he had that going for him, I guess. Interestingly enough, this wasn't the first time that Godfried had lost time. It was a common, and that's a common pattern with abductees. Like, if you, the thought now is if you've been abducted once, you're being studied. So a good scientist will come back and check on his or her subject matter. Uh, And it seemed like he knew, Godfrey reported that it seemed like he knew Yosef, 
So he's thinking in the other instances where I've lost time, maybe I've been studied by this preacher before. Things didn't go well for Godfrey after the encounter. Um, his superiors questioned his mental state and he had to undergo several assessments. He was hounded by the tabloids and he was never quite sure of what had really happened there. According to Gibson, and so this was the, the article's author, and this is a quote, the spot where he was allegedly abducted was on a blackened line. It was one of the lines that ran from the woods in Cornholm, which is about a mile and a half up the road from the spot where he was abducted. So our ley line expert is saying, of course he was abducted. He was in the perfect spot for it. And it seems like there definitely was something up that night. Uh, you can discount all the witnesses, their stories. Maybe it was just um, a telephone pole exploding or whatever. But those cows that Goffrey was out looking for that night, they turned up the next morning in the middle of a rain-soaked field with no hoof prints around them. So no one can explain how they got into the middle of this field. <laughs> so. Yeah. Ooh. Cows are usually tear up the, the dirt, especially like mud. Exactly. But none. So they levitated into the middle of the field, I guess. Again, just like my exorcism story, I don't know what's real and what's not because I don't know what I don't know. I'm not going to discount anything until there's proof one way or another about it. I have no doubt that ley lines are real. Uh, they're clearly marked by human use and uh, geologists have studied the magnetic fields and they're there. Did human use create pathways on um, lines that were already there? Were they created by some external force or did they have a natural um, magnetic energy fields? Uh, I don't know. I do know that the Ottawa area seems to be on one from what I saw. There is a large cross-continental ley line called the Kachina line that goes from Halifax to Tijuana. So if you take a map and you put your one end of the ruler on Halifax, it goes diagonally southwest and it ends at Tijuana, which is huh. just at the southern tip of California right on the coast. And we also seem to be sitting on the outer, outer edges of a vortex uh, created over the Great Lakes where Huron Superior and Michigan meet. Seems to be centralized. And I've heard like a Bermuda Triangle style situation yeah. is happening in the Great Lakes. It's just not as famous as the Bermuda one. And it seems to be caused by that vortex of lines that are created there. But yeah, and the map I saw, and I will send it to you and we'll post it for show notes. Um, you live out to the west end of the city I do. You're closer to the line than I am. So, sucks to be you. <laughs> so that is my story on ley lines. Woohoo! <laughs> so, my story, I decided to do ghost stories. Yeah! Or creepy stories. And uh, what I did is I picked one story for each province and territory in nice. Canada. And that's how I ended up with so many frigging pages. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to do uh, the north and west part of the country on this episode, and then we'll do the middle and the east in the next one. Sweet. So we're going to start in um, Nunavut, okay. which is not a ghost story, but probably the creepiest of all of the stories that I have. Fun times. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're going to go in our way back machine. So this is not a ghost story. It's, it's more of a zombie story. Ooh. Yeah. So... In the years when Canada was just starting, the nomadic uh, Inuit, especially those in the up, upper Arctic, had heard stories of white men but often never encountered them. Uh, the coastal indigenous people encountered white men who were well-dressed and well-fed, but the Inuits, most of them, their first counters were the polar opposites. 
even though many generations, even like the case of, of their very different experience, original experiences with the white men are going to become very obvious, but even many generations later, uh, Inuit are still being raised on stories of how two giant ships came into the Arctic and basically unloaded death on the ice. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, but not in the way you think. Oh. So, in about 1849-1850, in a remote Arctic hunting camp near the southwest edge of King William Island, a group of Inuit, mostly women, children with one older man, uh, one elderly gentleman, were gathered in an igloo while the other men were away hunting seals. When they heard a strange sound of nine lurching sets of feet approaching Ooh. them. So, the sound stopped when it got close to the igloo. And everybody was kind of freaked out because, like, this was not uh, a sound of the men returning in any means. Um, so the old, the elderly gentleman went out to check to see what was going on. And what he found was disordered figures, skin almost blue, unaware of his presence, and skins cold to the touch. Um, Inuit lore recount his thoughts as, never in my life have I seen the devil or spirits, and these were not human. Uh, these were, of course, the last survivors of the Franklin Expedition. I was wondering if that's where it was, yeah. <laughs> so they had seen their ships uh, entombed by ice, their captains dead, and they were 5,000 kilometers from home. The old man figured that they were alive because they were, uh, because even though he, they were cold to the touch, they weren't as cold as fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were too weak to be dangerous, so they invited them in to the igloo and tried to provide comfort. Um, despite the fact that they were obviously starving, they refused food. They spit out cooked seal meat and soup. Um, they held their belongings close to them when the Inuit offered trade. Um, and they were just incoherent. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they didn't speak the same language anyway, but they were just very disoriented. They were like sunken eyes, very freaked out. Yeah. Uh, and they freaked out the Inuit, obviously, who had never really come in contact with white Europeans. And again, this is for a, for a large portion of Inuit, uh, this would be the sort of thing that they encounter for the original white man. Right. Uh, so when the men returned from hunting, they built the strangers their own igloo, uh, built them a fire, and gave them three whole seals. Um, and Generous. So, yeah, so they set them up. But then in the night when the men were asleep, the Inuit gathered their things and got the fuck out of there. Because, Can't blame them. Uh, you know, they, they, didn't know they, they didn't really think that they were men. They didn't really know if they were huge. Like, they didn't know what the fuck this was. Yeah. Like, this could be spirits. But they sensed that... Um, staying longer with these strange people with iron knives would probably get them killed. So they got the hell out of there. There is some very good wisdom in that move as we saw elsewhere in the world. So the Inuit left in such a hurry that they did leave some shit behind, as one does when you're like gathering up in the dead of night. Um, so several months later, a small search party went back to retrieve the items. What they found was an igloo full of corpses. All the men had died. The seals were untouched. Oh. Instead, they had eaten each other. Ah. So actually, this is really common with the Franklin Exhibition. Ex expedition. Yeah. So expedition. Expedition, thank you. <laughs> um, like littered along the sort of coastline of King William uh, Island are bones and evidence of the men who left the expedition, ex uh, left the boats. 
that uh, even the Inuit still tell stories of these streams of dying white men carrying human flesh. Wow. They had sent Ray, someone Ray, the Scotsman, the British had, to um, look for the Franklin exhibition, and he gathered Inuit stories and went back to England and told this is what happened. Like, they starved to death. They ate each other. It just descended into chaos. And Charles Dickens actually was very offended because that was not the noble way yeah. for British people to die. So he called uh, Ray, the Scotsman, a you know liar and that the Scots were just trying to, like... Uh, you know, the, he's how dare he listen to the stories of these uncivilized people? Uh, who, the Scots are often called barbarians themselves, so yeah, and they're calling the Inuit these barbarian, yeah. uncivilized people. Um, and then classic Victorian Britain, yeah. So when Ray had gone back a, a few years, a couple of years later, I think, on another exhibition to, to find out more information or just explore the Arctic, I wasn't entirely sure. Um, he was very, very upset to find out that actually a lot of the Inuit people had passed away. So because of all the searchers coming for the Franklin groups, uh -huh. they brought influenza and uh, actually the Inuit people themselves at the time, like the influenza just decimated their population, food shell short, right. they starved to death, people ended up, I guess, resorting to cannibalism in some way to survive. Like wow. it was just... Yeah, so the exhibition, the expedition, sorry, uh, was sort of this first interest with white, like, interacting with white men, which was just so strange and opposite from every other mm -hmm. indigenous race. But then this, the people looking for that first wave ended up doing exactly what happened everywhere else. Not intentionally killing them, mostly just killing them by proxy. Yeah. So that was my creepy story from the Yukon about cannibalism. Or none of it, yes. So now we're going to go to the Northwest Territories, which isn't really ghost either. It's, uh, it's also more creepy. So the Northwest Territories with Headless Valley in the Nahidi National Park Reserve, where during the gold rush of the early 1900s, a number of prospectors lost their heads. <laughs> oh, boy. The park is located 300 miles west of Yellowknife and can only be accessed by plane or along a really long-ass hike. Okay. Um, it's apparently very beautiful, um, very well-preserved, and uh, very remote, obviously. In 1906, two brothers, Willie and Frank uh, McLeod, left and attempted to reach the Klondike by following the Nahidi River. Nothing was ever heard from them again for two years, but there was rumors that they hit it big. In, like with a mother load of gold um, and in eight, 1908 Charlie McLeod Willie and Frank's brother was part of another gold prospecting expe ex expedition God, I have <laughs> power. when he found the bodies of Willie and Frank tied to a tree both had been decapitated Yowzas. so he found his own brothers dead Ooh. in 1917 the decapitated body of a Swiss prospector was found next to his burned cabin. In 1945, the unnamed body of a miner from Ontario was found in his sleeping bag without his head, and all of the murders were un go unsolved. There's a couple of other mysterious deaths that didn't necessarily lose their head in the area, so that's why it's called Headless Valley. So the first one was in 1908? Yep. And it goes to 1940? No, to 1917, and then 1945. So that's almost 40 years. So either there was a serial killer at work. So there was some thought that this sort of 
Or you blame the local tribe. Well, there was some thought that it might be the local tribe um, because they were very uh, protective of their mm -hmm. land. Um, they were, uh, I don't remember what the name of the people, but they're probably, they think they're the precursors to the Navajos. Okay. Um, where the Navajo tribe came from. Uh, but there's also a, a, a sort of bushman that they ended up capturing for another reason oh. years later in that area that they think he might have also had something to do with it. Oh. Uh, he never confessed his crimes. I think he was killed for the years he was Yeah, mm. so there, but he was a bit like lone in the woods in this desolate part of the country. Right. Little Unabomber without the bombs. Yeah. More so. of the heavy choppy offy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Creepy. Uh, there was some rumors of the Frank and Willie with a third man, but they never found who that third man was. They've never found confirmed that there was a third man, but they never found the gold. So the lost McLeod uh, mine is an urban legend and people have searched for it. Oh. Yeah, so that's also an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Like, I just think Headless Valley, like, that's how it got its name. I feel like this would be a really good horror movie. Like, Blair Witch Project. Uh, yeah. Or, like, even if you, like, took it into, like, psychological thriller territory of, like, we're a bunch of young kids out having fun, and, of course, we're going to, two of them are going to sneak off and have sex and behind because the bush. Because, of course, and you know those people are going to die first. Of course, that's the opening scene of this movie that I'm crafting in my head. <laughs> one of them has to be of color, because that's also a... Yes, true. Yes. That's a horror movie. <laughs> to watch a lot of horror movies. <laughs> so, next on to our, the Yukon, which is more of a friendly ghost. So, okay. this is a ghost story was memorialized by Canada Post in their series called Haunted Canada... From 2015. Okay. Which actually I think I just finished using some of those stamps not that long ago. <laughs> it was the ghost of Bessie Gideon, who with her husband Edward owned the Caribou Hotel in Care Cross, Yukon. Originally built in uh, Brennett, Bennett, BC in 1898 at the start of the Klondike Gold Rush. It was then called the Yukon Gold, uh, Yukon Hotel. Following the collapse of the Gold Rush, the building was floated down Lake Bennett to Care Cross in 1908. Edwin and Bessie operated the hotel until it burned down and their building opened in 1910. Bessie died in 1933 and the hotel has been haunted by her ghost ever since. She's a spirit who enjoys slamming doors, creaking floors, <laughs> putting bubbles in bathtubs, Ooh. knocking on floorboards, and looking at windows. Mrs. Uh, Miss Gideon, Mrs. Gideon, um, uh, most night visits mostly at night, and is often seen on the second floor, which is the only room with a balcony. Guests who stay in the owner's suite will often wake up at night, and she'll be at, standing at the foot of their bed looking uh, at them. Creepy. Yeah. Uh, Miss Gideon's ghost is said to be so realistic to the point where one guest once thought she was someone who got locked in the building at night and took her downstairs and let her out. Oh. <laughs> So she is very, she's not translucent. She's, she's very, very corporeal. Yeah. yeah. So then we'll move on to uh, British Columbia. So um, the Victoria Golf Course is one of Canada's oldest and most haunted uh, golf courses. How do you haunt a golf course? Well, I guess well, you're going to tell me. But... I am going to tell you. <laughs> uh, so British Columbia has a bunch of stories. Like it was really hard mm -hmm. to pick just one. Um, so this is of 
Doris Gravelin. So this was also in Creepy Canada. Uh, she was a private nurse and married to Victor Gravelin, who was a sports writer. The couple had a seven-year-old son, and although they loved each other, their marriage was not a happy one. Victor loved his booze. Ah. When Victor lost his job at the newspaper in 1934 due to an illness most likely connected to alcoholism, Doris separated from him. Over the next two years, they tried to get back together, but it never worked out. On the evening of September 22nd, the two had arranged to meet at the golf course and take a favorite walk to the Oak Bay Beach Hotel where they were going to have dinner. Because they were still like very friendly, they still had a son, uh, they still loved each other very much, but again, he had a booze issue. Mm -hmm. um, two days later, so the, the couple's respective parents reported them missing. So they had never returned home. On Sunday, a young caddy on his rounds to look for lost golf balls, he discovered Doris's beaten and strangled body on the beach. Yowzas. A large club-like piece of driftwood lay near her body, and Victor was nowhere in sight. He had disappeared. Wow. Yeah. A search party was organized to look for him, which included the local Boy Scout troop. Oh. Who? Wait, what year was this again? 1934. Okay, so before anyone had a concept that you don't expose children to dead bodies. Yeah, so, or, <laughs> you know, potential murderers. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. A local Boy Scout troop. Yeah, sure, boys, just head off out into that forest where we're looking for a maniac. You know, just, just whistle real loud if you find him. <laughs> I had to include that because, like... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Parents of the Year award goes to... <laughs> but it was another month before his body was found. Uh, Victor was found by some fishermen with Doris, Doris's shoes still in his pocket. Um, and he was found out, obviously, floating uh, in the water. He was found tangled in some seaweed in a bay, hmm. not far from where her body was actually found. Um, the case was ruled a murder-suicide enclosed. Within a few short months, people started to report strange sights at the Victoria Golf Course. Uh, a fisherman fishing off of the Rocky Point was one of the first people to see uh, the ghost. Uh, the fisherman was unable to say what made him turn around and look up the bank at the green, but when he did, there was a woman staring out towards the kelp beds. She paid him no attention whatsoever, even though she was only a few feet away. He could not immediately understand while she was there because, you know, mm -hmm. the light was fading fast, like, because it was evening, mm -hmm. so why would she be out on a golf green? Also, probably, why was a woman playing golf? Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, the light was fading fast, and all the fishermen noted, besides the gloomy look on her face, was what he later described as old, uh, as she was in her old-fashioned brown suit. The suit stuck in his mind because Oak, Oak Beach was then and still now. One of Victoria's nicest suburbs and hardly a place where a young woman ignored fashion <laughs> was a direct quote. He continued casting. She said nothing. He said nothing. And then she suddenly hurried down as if she was going to meet someone. And on the way, she vanished. Hmm. The fisherman stated, I saw her kind of melt away. Creepy. Yes. And this was just a few months after she had died. Right. So she showed up right Real away. fast. Again, why don't current people haunt that fast but anyway uh there have been many sites of doris over the years so oh back to now this was on creepy canada and i couldn't really 
differentiate it. I couldn't authenticate it from any of the other stories. But they had said that the young caddy that originally found her body um, was was one of the first people also to encounter her ghost. So he yeah. was months later went back, probably like his first day back on the job. Oh, God. Because, you know, he was young and found her, like, murdered body. So that probably was pretty... And he would. He also uh, ran into her on one of the greens. <laughs> so that's probably, I would say, the last time he worked there. Do you get severance pay for that? Is there an EI package for hauntings? I don't know. <laughs> so there have been many sights, uh, many sightings of Doris over the years. She will apparently show up if you ring the bell between the sixth and seventh hole three times. Oh. Uh, she will often leave footprints in the sand traps, especially first thing in the morning, which. Okay. It's kind of a dick move because then they have to rake it. Re-rake, yeah. Yeah. And appear late in the evening on the greens closest to the ocean. Hmm. On a side note, her son was raised by his grandparents, went to school in England, and did not know the story about his parents' death until a reporter called him for a quote about his mother's ghost. Oh my god. Yeah. Talk about screwing up a life. I think this person was quite quite older when they but the, yes that's even worse like yeah. you've had like this entire narrative for yourself in your head and then all of a sudden some jag reporter calls you and busts that bubble that you've got going for yourself P.S. did you know your mother haunts a golf course, course because, because your father killed her and then himself and then himself yeah yeah oh so. my god oh my god so, Boy Scouts for years were, you know, probably also... <laughs> Boy Scouts, caddies, and sons of victims. Just not coming out ahead in the story at all. No, no, At no. all. No, no, no. <laughs> so, next we move on to Alberta. So, there's a trend here we'll see between now and the the next one. Uh, this was... This is the Fairmont Bad Springs Hotel in Banff. Ooh. So, it's a nazi place. Uh, there's a trend. A bunch of these are sort of take place in the um, Pacific Railroad hotels. Right. These yeah. grand hotels. I could have done almost like pretty much just a whole bunch of just like Fairmont hotel ghost stories. Mm-hmm. So um, the Banff Springs Hotel was, ap- was built in 1888 and was aptly dubbed the Castle of the Rockies. Since its grand opening to the public, countless guests from all over the world have checked into the hotel, but according to legend, some never checked out. <laughs> One of the most popular mysteries is the story of the missing room 873. According to hotel lore, a man, while staying with his wife and young daughter in the room 873, murdered his family before committing suicide. Ugh. As the story goes, the spirit of the young girl and that of her mother never left the room. Guests who stayed in the room reported of being woken uh, at night by violent shrieks, and chambermaids who routinely cleaned the room would report finding bloody fingerprints on the bathroom mirror that could not wash off. Oh my god. In response to the disturbing reports, hotel management has said, allegedly, to have sealed off the room. In spite of this, some say the ghosts or ghosts of room 873 still haunt the vicinity of that room to this day. Apparently, the hotel staff are forbidden to talk about it, <laughs> and I guess deny that eight, room 873 is supposed to exist at all. Some friendly ghost hunters have compiled a number of quote-unquote facts to prove that room 873 existed and was indeed boarded up. So the room, there are rooms ending in 73 on each of the floor above and below. Oh. The missing room on the eighth floor. 
So seven, there's seven seventy-three and nine seventy-three. If you head down the doorway, there's only lights above each door. Uh, there's one above where a missing door would be in the middle of the hallway. Okay. Um, the baseboard is cut where the door would have been. And when you knock along the walls, you notice that they're made of thick plaster. And as you knock down the wall on the eighth floor, suddenly it changes to a hollow sound right below the light, above the cut in the baseboard, where the door to 873 would have existed. Does it go 872 blank hallway, 874? Well, like odd numbers, right? So Damn it, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so 871 to 875? Yes. So I call this proof a bit questionable because none of the proof included that how big the rooms were on either side. So let's say uh, 871 is a large suite or 875. That would... It's chewing up the room Chewing space. up the space. Yeah. But also, of, if they're laying it lights, because this probably didn't say when this ghost haunting or this murder was supposed to happen, but this building is... 1888. Eight. Obviously before electricity. Uh, was it? Or before they would have put in these pot lights. Okay, yeah. In yes. the hallway. Yeah. So they probably spaced them out evenly. So if one of these rooms, like maybe yeah. it's just coming from, you know, my dad built or my husband is construction. in construction, yeah. um, doing a number of renovations. Uh, it would look weird if you had a big stretch with the light. If yes. all of these lights are probably somewhat evenly spaced because the doors are evenly spaced down the hallway. Um, also... You don't get baseboard in a run of two or three hundred feet that a long ass hallway would True. be. And I get that it's probably fairly restored, intact heritage, but that probably doesn't mean that baseboard probably has not been there since 1888. Because in a hotel that would be chewed to death with carts and luggage, luggage and, and yeah. vacuum cleaners. Think about how banged up your house the baseboards in your own house are yeah. without someone running trolleys and uh, house cleaning carts and all that stuff up and down it. Also, you know, maybe there was something behind there, a door or something else, but doesn't... Mm -hmm. Again, they don't say how big either room on this, each right. side of it yeah. is. And having spent a lot of time in hotels <laughs> doing what I do, maybe one of them is a larger suite. So Andy's yeah. a meeting planner, by the way. Yeah. She doesn't just... Spend other a lot reason. of time yeah. in hotels for other reasons. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm a conference planner, so I've been to a lot of hotels. Um, so yeah, that's that story. There's a bunch more ghosts at the Fairmont Bam Springs. I just decided to... Uh, I, I thought the eight missing 873 room is pretty funny. It's like a room of requirements for ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also funny that like the hotel staff is not allowed to talk about it. They're forbidden. So now I know that I next time I talk to some of my Fairmont people, Contacts, yeah, like, that I know, like, dubs. what the hell? <laughs> I wonder how much of it is just like, okay, Bamp Fairmont doesn't need the extra juice, but it does add a cachet of mysteriousness yeah. and. So it's like, no, we're not allowed to talk about that. Like, yeah, like, sort of like. Or was it just one manager got really, really effing fed up with having these phone calls and these conversations and just like made a decree that's been passed down <laughs> generation of generation of... No, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> we're so sick of it. <laughs> so on to Saskatchewan, which... So BC and Alberta had lots of stories. Mm -hmm. um, there was one that I saw in Creepy Canada from Alberta that once I actually did the research, it's not at all like, substantiated. Like, this house is not haunted. Oh. The Creepy Canada really, like... Did a stretch? Yeah. 
they did a big stretch on that, which really sucked because it had like a creepy doll and a creepy oh, like man. boy and stuff. But they're like, no, no. Um, Saskatchewan, which was a lot harder to find a story about. Fewer people, bigger spaces. Also like New Brunswick. Apparently nobody wants to go to Saskatchewan. <laughs> Sorry to our Saskatchewan listeners. Student and faculty at the University of Regina claim to have seen the ghost of Francis Nicholson Dark, a successful businessman and former mayor of the city who, in the early, early 20th century, donated the funds needed to establish what was then called Regina College. He also paid for the construction of the aptly named Dark Hall for Music and Arts, which is where students and visitors claim to see a distinguished gentleman dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing wandering around the halls, quietly keeping an eye on things and watching performances. <laughs> so... Um, worth a rabbit hole of itself is his home. So he also built the only medieval-style stone castle in Canada. Ooh. Which Laura goes was built to make his wife Anne feel safe after a cyclone ripped through downtown Regina. Hmm. Now this uh, is a really cool... They, they uh, Someone restored it. Mm-hmm. So you can go online and see some really kick-ass pictures. It has, like, someone has a suit of armor. It's got round turrets. It's, like, very... Um, like English, mm-hmm. like medieval castle feel to it. Okay. Um, uh, and there was a lore that says that he actually built a tunnel underground between his castle and the um, arts, so he could see the orchestra. So that's oh. why. He, so he's very arts and he loved the orchestra. He used to go watch performances there all the time. That's why his ghost hangs out there. <laughs> um, he died not long after the house was built but his wife Anne um, stayed in it. Uh, I guess a cyclone in that time had ripped through downtown Regina and and killed a bunch of people and took a bunch of buildings out and she never felt safe again because tornadoes are quite prominent in the prairie. Mm -hmm. So he built this building to withstand heaven and hell I guess. Mm. So yeah. So it's the only in Saskatchewan has the only medieval castle in Canada. Stone castle. I wonder about that because have you ever seen Castle Loma in Toronto? Yes, but I... So where's the... I don't know. Maybe the site's claims, like, you know, the lilac mm. capital of Canada is everywhere. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. That's a, good, so, that's a good idea for a rabbit hole, though, for me. I'm going to do Castle Loma at some point. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I've actually never been there. Ooh! I know. We need to take the show on the road. Apparently. <laughs> Come on! Patreon support. Yeah. <laughs> so that's show. me. I'm going to leave it at uh, Manitoba, and we'll do Manitoba after. Awesome. Yeah, so... Sweet. So yeah, by far the creepiest was the uh, Franklin. Yeah. Holy God. Like so, streams of men carrying. Like, I wonder. Like it's weird that they didn't want to trade their possessions for food, and that they wouldn't eat. They food. were so far gone by that point. This, this, they were saying that this story is probably one of the last, sur- like, remaining groups Group of, of survivors. survivors. So they had been, but they were still hungry enough to try to eat each other. Yeah. So was it just that they didn't trust the food that these quote-unquote barbarians, to... or they weren't used to it, or they weren't used to cooked flesh? Maybe by this oh. point. Let's just. Say... Well, you don't have to cook the seal. Yeah, seal can be raw actually. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I so, don't know. They just never had seen seals too. Maybe like yeah, harp seals. I wonder if that ingrained racism of we don't oh, yeah. trust probably the native people led to their. I guess uh, some other stories that uh, Inuit people found um, survivors of Franklin sleeping in 
hollowed out dead seals. Like, sort of... Like a Luke and a Tauntaun. Yeah, so maybe that's where they got the idea. Yeah, so they had... Yeah. But they were so, like, eyes shrunken, so sick from scurvy and starvation yeah. and malnutrition that they would be, like, off the rockers anyway. Good old they Victorian were... Europeans thought they could conquer everything, including a Canadian winter. Yeah, in the Arctic. Fools. Yeah. <laughs> Very sad. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our creepy Halloween episode. Uh, so just some reminders for you. If you want to connect with us or see our show notes where we list our sources for our stories, head on over to our website, which is rabbitholespodcast.com. You can also shoot us an email if you have any story ideas for us, any follow-up additional information that we missed. Shoot us an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. If you want to interact with us on the social, as the not cool kids say these days, we are on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. Facebook, we have a Rabbit Holes Podcast page set up, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. You can also support us uh, on our Patreon or connect via the support tab on the website. Uh, lots of fun stuff coming to the not so secret secret parts of our website. You guys get um, bonus stories from both Lisa and I, depending on your tier, uh, and some uh, newsletters and stuff like that, which are, we have our more um, visual rabbit holes, let's just say. You can also support us by getting some awesome merch off of our Redbubble store, or find, again, links on our website from the merch tab. Give us a good rating on iTunes. Thank you, everybody who, uh, who went out there and gave us a review or a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Uh, wait, Sorry. we have to admit to Elisa's blonde moment when she set up the contest, there is no way to give a rating on Google Play. Oh, okay. So <laughs> thanks to those people who gave us a rating on iTunes and Stitcher. You rock. Yes, you do. <laughs> Valerie, Allie. James. James. Uh, Eleanor. Medieval Queen. Medieval Queen. I always think Eleanor when I think Medieval Queens. Yes. It helps with our visibility. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so thanks for supporting and listening to us and letting us know that we're just not doing this by ourselves. Absolutely. One last thing to remind you of, and that is, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.